I have spent most of my life preparing to write this book. Luis Alberto Urrea wrote this line in the letter to readers that opens his latest novel, Good Night, Irene. If you've never heard of the Clubmobile Corps, an all-woman volunteer program of the Red Cross, affectionately referred to as the Donut Dollies, we learn all about them in the novel Good Night, Irene. And what a story it is. These volunteers, the women, had two months of training and then were sent out among the troops in two-ton trucks equipped with coffee makers and donut machines, and not a little compassion to share. But they also faced harrowing experiences out there behind the front lines. This is Book Public from Texas Public Radio. I'm Yvette Benavides. Through his research, Luis Alberto Urrea discovers that his mother had been on the front lines, she and her truckmates. The Donut Dollies were recognized as the foremost women in battle in World War II and were among 250 elite club mobile women who accompanied the troops that pushed through France and Belgium and Germany after D-Day. Urrea's mother was assigned to Patton's Third Army and became trapped behind enemy lines in the Battle of the Bulge and was there to help liberate Buchenwald. Urrea's mother did not speak about her time in the Red Cross, but the author's research and an incredible twist of fate that leads him to a 94-year-old donut dolly who worked with Urrea's mother helps him retrace the steps and write the story. The story in Good Night, Irene is a work of fiction, but as Urrea writes, Sometimes the fable is the surest way to see the truth. And the interview you're about to hear illustrates this fact that Luis Alberto Urrea has spent most of his life preparing for this book. Urrea sits alongside his wife Cinderella during our conversation as he discusses his sometimes painful childhood, his mother's undiagnosed PTSD, how his solitude was a part of his writing life, in the same way that the support of women became the inspiration for so many of his books. Urrea's sometimes difficult relationship with his father leads to yet another part of the story. It's an unlikely piece of the puzzle, but as you'll hear, it makes perfect sense. An epigraph that opens the book is from the song lyrics of Irene by Joan Manuel Serrat, a beloved Spanish composer and singer whose music has been much admired by Mexicans for decades. In the song, Serrat sings, No comprendo cómo puede usted pasar y no verla, or I don't understand how you can pass by and not see her. How has a story like this one not been told and retold of the compassion, valor, and selflessness of someone like Phyllis McLaughlin de Urrea? How did even she hide it away in a diary, in a box, in the secret compartment of a hollow doorknob, or in her own long forgetting? Luis Alberto Urrea helps us see. I talked to Luis Alberto Urrea about his novel, Good Night, Irene. I'm so excited about this book. I don't know. I have like all my emotions in my throat right now. And I can imagine that you do too about this book. <laughs> and right now I have Serrat's Irene in, in my head. Ay, qué bueno. I've been listening to it. On <laughs> Isn't that song perfect? It just, it, I don't know why. The first time I heard it, it completely broke my heart when I was a kid. And I'm so glad you brought it up because nobody's brought it up. Nobody's mentioned it. I don't think they've even noticed it, which kind of makes my point, you know? No comprendo como puede usted pasar y no verla. And I was like, come on. The world is full of Irene. So why aren't we paying attention? Oh, that's so beautiful. I love Serrat to begin with, but to, to come across that epigraph in your book was just, it was perfect. Oh, I'm so glad. But yeah. I, you know, I just wanted, I, you know, I wanted the raza to know I haven't forgotten, man. I, you know, still am Latino. I still care about Spanish. And that's why, here's a little tip for you. You might appreciate the, the character in the second half, Zut Garcia. That bato showed up in my first novel, In Search of Snow. I've been waiting 30 years to tell that guy's story. I was on a search for those little sorts of, Easter eggs. <laughs> it was very happy to come across good old piano playing Garcia. 
<laughs> Love it. But tell yeah. me, tell me first, tell me about the first moment, like the first time you knew something in your head, in your mind, in your soul about this book, the seed of this book. When was that first moment? There's a couple of things. You'll you'll appreciate this, I think. I think other people haven't quite understood it when I've talked about it, but my mom was the only American in the family. Puros Mexicanos. Everybody from Sinaloa, Mexico City, or Tijuana. And me. And in, when I was a little boy, I had a Tijuana accent. Whereas my mother was New York. You know, called me dear boy. Luchi, which I hated because the Mexicans thought it was hilarious. I Luchi. Luchi. <laughs> I wanted something more macho, you know. So she was this outlier in our family and never really connected with her own family. So she lived in this isolation in Tijuana and then San Diego. That was part of it. Part of it was her nightmares, you know, realizing later that she had PTSD because nobody knew what that was until you know, much later. Um, part of it was her very stingy sharing of some war memories and me not quite getting it, you know, I, I was a callow kid in Southern California, you know, still wanting to be a famous writer. I always wanted to be Leonard Cohen. Well, okay. I wanted to be Steve McQueen first. <laughs> Found out I wasn't going to do that. <laughs> and then I wanted to be Robert Plant in Led Zeppelin. I couldn't do that. Um, but the writer, it was always being a writer. So all of those things went into it. But the moment when the actual book presented itself to me, was when we met Miss Jill, the model character for Dorothy in the novel. Mm -hmm. And we thought Miss Jill was dead and she ended up living an hour and a half from our house, which, you know, I, that, that, that was astonishing. There were a lot of milagros all the way through this book. I almost felt my mom's hand in it. But um, we went down to meet her. She was 94, was about to turn 95. And when we went into her apartment, she had a framed portrait of my mother in her uniform on the wall. She'd been missing my mom since 1954. And uh, my mom looked beautiful. She's 27 years old at the height of her powers, you know, looking sort of up to the sky a little bit in her uniform. And Miss Jill said this. She said, I drove the truck but your mother brought the joy. And I was just whiplashed. I thought my mother brought the joy, you know, and I had, I had, I had sort of constructed this semi-tragic and, you know, your nutty mom thing. You know, we were always like, I mom, mom, mom. <laughs> um, and I suddenly saw this young woman full of dreams and heroism going into this horrible thing. The book just came to life right there. It's like the someone watered the seed, you know, and here, here, here comes a little, here comes a little flower. It was great. Well, late in the book, you write, she had arranged her world into a long forgetting. Yeah. And I thought about, that's about the character, but I thought about how that sort of conflates life with your mother you now know that she may have been living with an undiagnosed PTSD. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. And that time was so difficult and she didn't talk about it the way that, that veterans uh, from, from world war one, world war two were not inclined or not inclined to discuss those details and, and oh, go back oh. to those memories. A absolutely. You know, all, all wars, Korea, Vietnam, uh, Afghanistan. I was just telling somebody this, but at the gym we go to, Cindy and I always go work out together. Miralos. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> we go to the gym and uh, there there was a really lovely man there, youngest to me, because everybody's young to me now, but, you know, much younger than we were, maybe in his 40s. Lovely guy, realtor. We would talk about this book and I told him, yeah, I'm finally going to be able to get Cindy the lake house she wants if I'm lucky. <laughs> and he's, he was, I'll help you, I'll help you. He was, a, uh, he was a, a veteran of the Middle Eastern Wars, and he, he shot himself three weeks ago. Oh Out of the blue, just gone. 
Um, and I think a lot of people are living with a lot of things that they don't know how to how to deal with. So that, you know, that's kind of what was behind, I think, what you're asking, the long forgetting. She was torn between forgetting and remembering. And uh, I think that was that was really difficult for her. And so there's some little things that are in the novel that were real. Um, for example, in the late, late parts of the novel, you know, when we discover the the antique doorknobs with photographs of people inside the doorknobs. That was my mom. That was my mom. She after she died, the little round plaque I talk about in the doorknob had sprung off the doorknob. And so like a little shield held in by phalanges it, it had popped out and uh, I was going to put it back in and I looked inside the doorknob and there's a photograph of a man she'd clearly cut it out and tucked it in black haired man and I knew immediately that she had put it there to protect her at night who was that guy I don't know though years later at J Miss Jill's house when we were looking through Miss Jill's photo albums she had pictures of my mom with a black-haired fighter pilot in Cannes on the beach. Mm -hmm. And uh, I would swear that the guy in the doorknob was that pilot. And that, you know, that's amazing. There's just all these these little yeah. crisscrossing things. It was Jake. <laughs> Jake. Yeah, Jake. <laughs> the handyman. Handy. Now, in your acknowledgments, you said this. Sometimes the fable is the surest way to see the truth. Yeah. And all of these stunning true details are in this novel, in this work of fiction. Uh, can you talk about the club mobile core, which is again, one of these elements that is all too true, but yes. that you bring to life for us in what is essentially a work of fiction with Irene Woodward and Dorothy Dunford and, and Ellie and the th all those third girls. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The, <laughs> the donut dolly. The yeah. third girl in the truck. You know, we're, we're, we're taking the most of the book tour. This is ridiculous and insane, but we had to do it. Cindy and I are driving it. We bought a new SUV. <laughs> and we're calling it the Clubmobile tour. And somebody <laughs> just this morning said, hey, why don't you take on reporters and stuff as the third girl in the truck for a leg of it? And I thought, Wow. That's Except we have great... too much fun by ourselves, but <laughs> I would consider. Um, yeah, the 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 details, uh, the details that 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 makes the story. You know, you want it to to have life, and so many of those details are lost because the women themselves are lost. To have such an amazing World War II story in an era that still seems to love World War II stories, but to not have these women even mentioned. You know, Jill, she's 94, I think I told you when we met her, mm -hmm. was steaming mad that they had been forgotten. They'd been written out of or just ignored completely out of the story. She got so mad with all the, you know, the greatest generation news coverages and the band of brothers and all that stuff. She wrote to Tom Brokaw, who was the great champion of World War II issues, and complained and said, we were there, we were there. And he didn't answer. So she wrote again. And his secretary sent her a note and said, that's very interesting. And if we find any space in one of the broadcasts or, you know, we'll, we'll mention you. Um, Never did. And so she always called him that one with the hair. You know, that one <laughs> with the hair on television. <laughs> he was mad. You know, there were reasons for it. And, and part of it was that they weren't actually in the army. They were in the Red Cross. And people still to this day think Red Cross women were in the rear. And uh, I've been complaining about this a little bit because, you know, the, the New York Times put put out the column I wrote about her. And I didn't expect the response has been overwhelming. I mean, they cut off at 500 messages, but we're still getting messages. Women telling the stories of their moms and the silence or their own silence or how grandpa didn't talk over and over and over again. But sure enough, mansplainer or two got in touch with me to let me know that that's exaggerated. In fact, you know, I was exaggerating the record. The reality was these women wouldn't have even heard a weapon. And I thought, well, thanks for making my point. 
He'd seen movies. He'd read all the books. They're not mentioned in any of the books. And I wanted to say, if Jill were still alive, she would have something to say to you about this. She was even mad at Stephen Ambrose. Everybody. (laughs) She was like, where are we? Where are we in the history? And she's fought for that. You know, she she corresponded with people in Congress and they did get a citation for being the most forward women in combat. That's from the U.S. government. So, you know, she felt a little vindicated, but still forgot. Well, your research, Luis, I mean, so that, like this again is a, is a way to tamp down some of the, you know, some of the mansplaining and some of the some of these <laughs> sayers. Your research, I mean, as you describe it and and as it is so obvious in this book and even just what we know about Jill. And I also have followed you on social media for so long. So I was following along some of that too. (laughs) Um, There's, there was a lot of insight too about your research over the, over the last few years, even. Yeah. So I want to ask you about that. It sounds like, like you and Cindy traveled and, and also child, your daughter traveled all over the place and, and it wasn't just about sort of setting foot on, you know, uh, going into a country where your, where your mother traveled or where the Red Cross or where these uh, donut dollies might have been, but just to really be in these spaces, but also the documentation and just, just an astounding amount of research. I feel like it really really shows up on these pages of your novel thank you thank you you know you're doing it for your mama so you better do a good job you know yeah um i i i i just honestly i'm i'm answering your question but i just want to put this on the record that you know i'm so tired of those he-men doing he-men stuff, man, and saving the world. And the reality is that the, our moms are the heroes, not us. Our grandmothers are are the heroes. Our sisters are the heroes. Our girlfriends, and I don't mean romantic, but those girls that mm-hmm. took us under their wing when we were boys and hopeless and scared. And that's what happened to me. All the girls I knew saw me as the writer. It's probably why I'm writing still today. Um, our daughters, they're the heroes. And and you guys allow us to, you know, walk around crowing like roosters and you wait till we get done and then go back to running the world, man. That's how I grew up. So it was very important to me to try to understand as completely as possible um, what the experience had been. And that that... That even included going back to New York to see where my mother was actually from. And uh, it's interesting to me because our first research trip to New York was to work on the sequel to The Hummingbird's Daughter. It didn't even occur to me to look up my mom, but Teresita lived on a specific street in Manhattan for a while. And we went there and her house was still there, but it's now a Kinko's. But the original front door and the original front door across the street is still there. And I thought Teresita looked at this door every day. So that little bit of experience started resonating with my mother hard when I realized what I was starting to do. And so, you know, she she spent a girlhood in Staten Island. And to hear my mother talk, Staten Island was this emerald isle this mystical you know island of of haute couture and and uh you know yankee brilliance and literacy and all this and so you know (laughs) and we went and we took the ferry across and you know i I was looking the harbor and there's the statue of liberty and i see my mom in my mind at 13 years old going to the city and thinking yes and then we get to staten island and it sure wasn't what, what she said it was, you know, I always tell people got some really good pizza and bagels there. But we <laughs> went to the part of Staten Island she was from, which was Richmond Village, the revolutionary remnants in in the hills. And suddenly I'm standing on my mom's street and I'm looking at the condo that has replaced her childhood home. But there I, I, 
something I, I couldn't have imagined, right? And I always wondered why, if she was Episcopalian, why did she love Catholicism so much and wanted me to be a priest and put me in Catholic mm -hmm. school and loved the nuns and blah, blah, blah. Well, the church at the end of her block is a Catholic church. And the grade school she went to is across the street and it's a Catholic school. She was taught by nuns. I, you know, you're seeing your mother for the first time. I have, I have a piece coming out uh, on Memorial Day in Time, uh, Time, their website about this very thing, meeting my mother. And I had Chayo, our daughter, Rosario Teresa, named after my godmother, Mama Chayo, and Teresita, the hummingbird's daughter. So, you know, she's already a literary little creature. But we're walking <laughs> around looking at all this stuff. The revolutionary homes my mom knew were still there. And I knew that she used to take a book and walk down the hill through the forest. There's a trail down to the creek, the streams that are running at the bottom of this little valley and that there are little waterfalls. And we started down. Chayo was in front and I'm watching her and I see her putting her hand on the oak tree trunks to steady herself and the old literally ancient now split rail fences are still there and see her grab the the railing as she goes down this hill and it it hit me my mother probably took this exact walk they were the same size five three <laughs> <laughs> and that my mother touched that tree i know it my mother and when we got down, there's a, there's a road now, and Chayo crossed the road, went right to the stream and found this flat stone and sat there looking meditative. And I thought, oh, my God. I just knew in my gut this is where my mom went to sit and read Emily Dickinson or whatever. Dickens. And there's Chayo. And I knew if Chayo had had a book, she probably would have started reading and wouldn't even notice us anymore. You know, those little things are where the, those details are where it starts to come out. And um, this last summer, the, the one part we hadn't gotten to, because we'd went, we'd gone all over Europe, all over Europe for a couple of years. Um, but COVID, you know, the, the, the lockdown stopped mm -hmm. us from finishing our work in England. And uh, so we went to England again once we could. And uh, we went to find the village of Glatton, where she had been stationed at the air base I talk about, the B-17 base. And here's the thing. I know you're going you're gonna to understand this. I have my mother's pictures of Glatton. And she was living in this thatched roofed house on the second story with Jill and the third girl in the truck. And on the ground floor... John Ford's film crew were living, these guys, cameramen, because they were making a documentary. And so there was a constant party going on in this house. Okay. And we have a picture of my mother looking like a movie star at the window of this. Oh, you're my dogs. Oh, they're all excited. So, <laughs> so she's upstairs looking out the window up at the sky and I knew because she had told me that when they weren't working at the bomber base, they would watch the, the formations fly overhead. Wow. So she's looking up there. I have Chaya with me and I point because she's, of course, never met her grandmother. Her mother, her grandmother died long before she was born. And I said, there's your grandmother's window. She's I have pictures of her looking out this window and across the street. There was a, a, a writer, an English writer that my mother worshipped. Mm -hmm. It's a little street. And she was catty corner from his house. Beverly Nichols. Wow. And it's there. We have the picture and then the house right there. So we took her over there. And I said, you know, this is where your grandmother hung out. And to have all that history right there yeah. still. And this being England, it was also a little bit Monty Python, you know, because we're standing <laughs> in front of the house and he, you know, our hosts are taking pictures of us posing there, right? And we didn't see that there's an Englishman inside the house looking out the window at us. 
And he, he popped out. He said, hello, what's going on here? He said, oh, my mother lived over in Mrs. Cobbold's house across the street. And she used to come here because of Mr. Nichols. And he said, oh, well, then you'd better come in and look around. <laughs> off we go. And, you know, my daughter's thinking dad lives some kind of weird enchanted life or something. And he knows oh his, his lobby. We looked at the gardens. And then we went down to the air base. And this is, again, where you realize how unfair the experience of these women were. They, they, they were on that base. They lived in town. They would ride bikes three miles to the base, work, and three miles back on bicycles. Um, both American and the English women in their buses parked on the base doing all this stuff and the people who curated it had no idea they'd ever been there. Wow. And they were astonished. And, you know, a whole new piece of history. They didn't have a single picture of them. I have pictures of them there on the base with their truck. They didn't. Um, and the guy who, who manages the airfield asked us, would you like to walk the runway? It's still there. And, of course, we said yes. And so Chayo and I joined him walking down the runway and it's got uh, you know all those numbers and the arrows pointing the direction for the planes to go all this stuff it was haunting silent huge wheat fields with with you know english forests at the end <laughs> and he stopped us and he walked off the the runway into the tall grasses and he was puttering around and he came back with a triangular chunk of tarmac I keep it on my desk and he handed it to me and he said, you'd better take this. He said, because your mom might've stood on it. Oh, gosh. Good Lord. So it wasn't really research so much as just experience. You know, your mom is washing over you like a wave. And then back home, Miss Jill is there to hear about it. And it would, it would set off her memories. I just love the story. And I'm thinking about John Clare now too, which is, I think a poet I'm always going to associate with, uh, with your mom and good night, Irene. Um, you know, that, that's, that's great. Cause I, I love John Clare and out of the blue child said, dad, have you heard of John Clare, the poet? I said, yes, I love that guy. <laughs> and I thought, how cool is that? You know, so I had to, I had to sneak him in. I love this. I, I love the way that your daughter is involved in this or has been involved in this, but also yeah. of course the beautifully ubiquitous Cinderella. <laughs> I wonder if you can talk a little bit about Cinderella. Ay, la Cinderella, pues, hombre. <laughs> um, you know, interestingly enough, Cinderella ended up being the only American in the Mexican family <laughs> you know, when we got married. <laughs> All of the all of the Ureas in San Diego, you know, they're like, oh, and in Sinaloa too, they're like, oh, la Cindy, yeah, la Cindy. <laughs> um, and I had this great cultural experience with the fam that, you know, when she first came in, they they of course loved her to death, but she was kind of a slightly alien creature to the fam because they're really old school Mexicanos, you know, except the young who are nervatos, mirucas, you know, and uh, so they have us to dinner. And, you know, we're having this big dinner and I have a, I have a big rough and tough nephew who's done. And they were all amazed. They're like, yeah, Cinderella, you know, la cenicienta se llama de Cinderella, que barba. <laughs> and the guy's over there, he doesn't speak Spanish. He's just Chicano, you know, and he's just sitting there and he's waiting, he's waiting. And he leans over and he goes, hey, Tia Snow White, pass me the potatoes. <laughs> and they're all yelling at him, oye, menso. No, it's no way to Cinderella. And he says, so what? It's a fairy tale. She's <laughs> white. <laughs> and, you know, it was like that all the time. One of my one of my brothers, he and his wife decided to make us Thanksgiving dinner. They'd never cooked a Thanksgiving dinner. And they invited us over for it. And we were sitting at the table. And, you know, there's, there's some turkey. And... I know this is not true, but I swear I think it is. But there are maybe some enchiladas with it. But anyway, <laughs> turkey. And she came out with a pitcher full of what we thought was cream and started pouring the cream all over the turkey. And I said, is that is that crema or what? And she said, 
Luis, it's the mashed potatoes. <laughs> so that was her that was her trial by fire in Toronto. Oh. You know, Cindy is a is a is a journalist. She's a a veteran of Gannett or a survivor of Gannett. You know, she was 20 some years in Gannett. Um we you'll appreciate this. We uh we were a bit of a journalism scandal because uh you know, I came to Tucson working on Hummingbird's Daughter, and they sent her to interview me. We ended up married, so that was a good <laughs> thing. Um, and we do everything together. We travel together. I've tried to actually, believe it or not, talk her into sharing a, a, a byline sometime, but she won't do it. She always says, I'm logistics. I say, stop that. I mean, you know, every single thing I write, sooner or later, we sit up all night in bed talking about and Sometimes, because you've read my stuff, you'll know this, that, that sometimes it's some really painful. And, you know, and Cindy being a reporter is a much better typist than I am. So sometimes she'll come along and push me out of the way and start typing and just say, just dictate. And I wander <laughs> around crying and saying these oh. painful things. She, you know, but we've always had a partnership and, and we do everything together because we found each other later, you know, and we both had the, uh, unsuccessful first marriages and now we don't have that and we have a beautiful family and you know and we're 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 happy to do this and we travel together all the time and i do every possible public event no matter where it is we do together and you know i'll i'll, I'll buy the extra ticket for mm -hmm. her because we just consider it you know, our 57th second honeymoon, if you know what I mean, yeah, we it. get to go everywhere. Uh, and that's great. And it's, you know, we always have a companion. We always, you know, we garden together. We watch trash TV. We were just watching trash TV that we missed while we were on the road. <laughs> this last week. I love it. I love hearing this about how our mothers and our sisters and our girlfriends are yeah. the heroes and knowing how Cinderella is so involved in these processes that she's the one who, you know, had to read the diary entries to you because it was such an emotional thing for you. Or she's the one who gets on Google um, and finds out that Miss Jill is just 90 minutes away from your house. I mean, these kinds of details, I just eat up with a spoon. I, I just love this partnership. And, and, and it gets me to thinking about how Your stories are about women. Yeah. Know, into the beautiful North. I mean, I mean, these are stories about women. <laughs> and, um, you know, there's a character in this novel. I won't give it all away, but that, that says, you know, aging is a kind of a war for, for us too. And yeah. I think about what, what it means for, um, for all of us to have a book like this, to learn about these women, women from another time, and yeah. yet look at look at how sort of timeless their strength is and their sort of sense of survival is and their way of loving is just for all time. And I, I don't know, I just love knowing that you had this this story about your mother and miss jill and then cinderella is there in the mix too and i just i just love that whole that whole thing thank you me me too honestly i i i have to tell you that i i have a mixed relationship with my gender <laughs> because <laughs> You know, sometimes guys, I just want to put my armor on them and say, you know, you got to cut the crap, bro, because you're 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 being really stupid. You know, you're being really stupid. And um, I just don't. I was raised by women. My dad was sort of absent. We Mexicano. He didn't approve of me sometimes. He thought I was weird, you know, about whatever. Um, but imagine this. So there's my mom. You know, she has me for whatever reason in Tijuana, married to my dad. And we lived on this dirt street 
en Colonia Independencia. Rampa Independencia 1002. I remember it still. My cousin <laughs> Hugo lives there. Um, and there's my mom, my grandma, Mama Lupita, my tia Leti, La Flaca, my tia Irma, Mexico's national bowling champion. And unbeknownst to everybody in the family, you know, the first out lesbiana in the whole family who ended up having a wife, for God's sake, like in the 60s, and the familia saying, isn't it nice that the, the girls take care of each other until they find husbands? And all <laughs> of us, the young generation was like, no, it's not really like that at all. They love each other. But puras mujeres. And my, my cousin Margo, who suffered horrible things, and I don't even have to extrapolate. You all know what I'm saying at the hands of the men in the family. And she was magical. I don't, you know, my first touch of magical realism came from Margarita, this mishandled young girl. She was about maybe five years older than me. But she, honest to God, and this isn't just a Garcia Marquez thing, she could summon birds out of the sky. I don't know what that was about. Era bruja, you know, she put up her finger and a bird would come and land on it. How could you not love that? And then when we moved out of Tijuana, you know, I, I there was tuberculosis. I had tuberculosis. I tell this to people because my parents told me, don't ever tell anybody ever you had tuberculosis. So I tell everybody, yeah, I had tuberculosis, <laughs> you know, because this shame, there's enough shame to go around. What's what's wasn't anybody's fault. I just had it. It was a rough place. So we got to San Diego and then I had godparents because nobody else could take care of me because they thought I'd kill their family with tuberculosis. And the Garcia family, Mama Chayo, now you know where Chayo's name came from, and her family, full house of women. Avelino was the man, el gallo de la casa. He was the one who bellowed about life and stuff, and they just patiently waited for him to go to work. And then women got back to running the world. Mama Chayo, her two daughters, Kela and Fina, my first girlfriends, they were maybe 13 years older than me. I was smitten with both of them. I spent all my days with them. Um, and then La Nina. La Nina. You know, we don't have that anymore. Nina. I, I've joked about this before in lectures, but Nina was 90 years old, you know, when I was born. It was 90 years old, 20 years later. She never <laughs> just, you know, what 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 now in, in cultural studies and in mythology, they call the crone, you know, the old fountain of female wisdom. And she was the most magnificent. She had, I don't see those anymore, but these big blocky black old lady shoes we always you know and she had a baston and she had a little goatee of white <laughs> hair and i you know and she was the she was the depository of all history and uh, she had a little sewing room with a little bed and that's where i'd sleep at night when i stayed with him and i would sit at her feet as she crocheted and she would tell me stories and very slowly she'd fall asleep and i'd watch her snore i'd watch her little whiskers that's how I grew up. And, um, you know, all the way through moving to Claremont, this white suburb, my mom was much happier, but I felt lost and I didn't have money. I had a Tijuana accent still. I was talking a little bit like this, you know, and uh, the Boy Scouts of all people started calling me greaser wetback. And I realized suddenly if I was going to survive, I better switch closer to my mom right now and speak like she did because I was I, I was a freak and I didn't want to be a freak so I went into junior high school feeling completely lost and you know couldn't dance I all that stuff I was a nerd reader uh the guys were kind of weird they even at that time they were saying such stupid things about the girls I was like, you're talking about my people, man. You know, <laughs> uh, what are you talking about? Uh, and the girls, the girls closed around me. I'm getting a little emotional, but they closed around me and they, they were my friends. And when we got to high school, they were calling themselves my harem, which I thought was hilarious. 
I didn't have a girlfriend, but I had a harem, man. <laughs> and uh, they read my poetry, and then we would talk all night on the phone, you know, and uh, there was, uh, I would play them quietly. You remember the phones with the long coiled cord? <laughs> I would take the wall phone off of the kitchen wall and stretch it into my bedroom and play Leonard Cohen really quietly and listen to them weep. <laughs> oh. Oh, Louie. Oh, I know. I know. <laughs> no, but that's 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 who I like to be with. And it it's God's little joke that no matter where I go, I always tell this to Cindy because there are always these weird killer males that show up and they're dedicated to protecting us all. Right now I've got a border patrol agent that just loves me to death. And he's always ready to go to combat. Anything you need, bro. But thanks, bro. <laughs> so I do the bro thing too. I like car chases and detective books and you know, all that stuff. But uh yeah, I I've always felt so close to women. And I am so grateful for them forgiving me for the sins of malehood, you know. Um and since we've talked about Chayo, I think you'll appreciate this. She got feminist really early, you know, and was really <laughs> serious about it. And she told me one day, Dad, I've decided that there has to be an island somewhere where all you men can be put, and then we'll run the world the way it should be. And I said, well, okay, but I can stay, right? And she looked at me, and she said, yeah, I'll have to think about that. <laughs> <laughs> which you know i just love so I, I i just like being in partnership you know i like being being safe with each other just but i i feel that way across the board you know i don't understand racial hatred i don't understand you know gay bashing i don't understand transphobia who, who cares if you you know if you don't believe in gay marriage then don't marry somebody who's gay. Believe them alone. Leave people alone. So that's if you want to know my my theology and my my politics, it's that. But you know, don't raise your hand to anybody unless you're just saying hello. Have a fabulous day. I see you. I'm your friend. Bye. You know, I don't. I don't. And that comes from being around a lot of tension, a lot of racial strife. You know. Lots of violence in the barrio. I didn't like it. So, ahí está. So, Luis, I, I wonder if people have said to you that this, that Goodnight Irene is a departure, just in terms of what some of your readers know you for. <laughs> writing about the U.S.-Mexico border, writing about characters like the ones in, like, House of Broken Angels most recently. I mean, I just, uh, Zut Garcia notwithstanding, right? I discern that <laughs> that this novel is also that that this is also as uh, maybe based on everything we've talked about today that this novel is it was inevitable this was an inevitable story from Luis Alberto Urrea am I am I wrong about that am I right about that you're right about everything sister <laughs> no i i um no, I think you're right. I it, it it had to happen. And I have honestly, I haven't even talked about this. This is it. This, this is your exclusive. But I have spent my entire life trying to represent my father. And partially this is because, you know, when I was 21 years old, he was, he died at the hands of Mexican cops. The thing he loved the most, Mexico. And um, I'd been the first to go to college. And I'm muy Mexicano, all right? He had kids, if you know what I mean. <laughs> Familias. Mm -hmm. uh, but I was the only one between him and my mother. And uh, so I was going to college. And he was not thrilled with what I was doing. He wanted me to be a lawyer or an accountant, you know. And when we had the meeting... They had already gotten separated, but, you know, we sat down together having coffee. And my dad said, Luis, ¿qué vas a estudiar, pues? You know, what are you going to study? What you? 
And I said, oh, dad, yeah, I know what I'm going to study. I'm going to be an actor. <laughs> and the look on his face was like, okay, <laughs> anything else? And I said, yeah, I'm going to write poems. And he was like, oh, my God. But he still wanted to celebrate it. And he drove back to Rosario, Sinaloa, our foundational town, 27 hours to get money from his bank account. He got $1,000 to bring back to be his first graduation gift. Uh, and he was south of Yuma and ran afoul of some crooked police and horrible things happened. But his injuries made him, and he would be really angry that I tell you this, but made him wet himself and bleed. And so they didn't know that there was money in his pocket because they wouldn't put their hand in the pocket. Um, and they left him at the police station to die. He, he, he apparently struggled for eight hours. Um, and Ugo, aforementioned Ugo, someone did call him in Tijuana and he drove 300 miles in his truck to my dad. And he basically told him, you can die now. And he held him as my father died. And Ugo found the wet, still wet cash. Um, he knew because my dad had told him what he was doing. So uh, I, I went to the, the funeral home in Tijuana. He called me and said, you've got to get to the funeral home in Tijuana. I got a ride with Margarita and Tia Flaca. And they took me down, down to Tijuana from San Diego. Um, and uh, Ugo met me and he handed me the money. And he said, you know why it's damp, right? And I said, I, I, I was 21 years old. I said, I, I, I can figure out, yeah. And the police showed up. And they had brought my father in a station wagon from San Luis. Ironic, isn't it? He died in San Luis. Um, and... Uh, I went out with Ugo. They just shook their hand like an idiot because I didn't understand. And I thanked them for bringing him. Uh, it, I told them it was very kind. And they just looked at me, you know, and the cop said, well, that's good. That's good. But before we leave, uh, you have to pay the fines. And I said, what fines? And they said, well, he's still under arrest, so you need to pay bail. And I said, wait, he's dead. And the cop was like, oh, study in. If you don't want to pay bail, I'll take him back. We'll do whatever we want to with him if you don't want to pay. And I said, how much do you need? And I said, $750. I had 1000 So I peeled off the, the 750 and they pocketed it and just walked away. And at that moment... The, the undertaker, the, the guy who ran the funeral home came out. He was watching all this and he said, Joven, you know, I've got to tell you, it, this isn't a ministry. This is a business and we have to pay. For, you have to pay for the funeral. And I'm just looking at Ugo, you know, like what? And uh, I said, how much is that? He said, $800. And I had some money left from the previous. So Ugo and I went to all the relatives, all the siblings, everybody, and scraped it all together and paid it. And uh, my dad, I hate to admit, was buried in an unmarked grave on a hillside in Tijuana. So you can imagine this stuff and other things. There's all kinds of other stuff. Some of it uh, got into a house of broken angels. But, you know, I was, I was, I was kind of lost. I was kind of broken. And, um, you know, I think writing was the only solution. So much so that uh, I didn't know how to process what had happened to my father and to me. I didn't know it had happened to me. Um, and I wrote a story about it, not knowing what else to do. And I mentioned to you, I was discovered by Ursula Le Guin. That's how she came as a visiting workshop leader at my college and the professor gave her the story and at that point she took me under her wing and said you know you've got to I'm, I want to buy it I want to publish it and she did
and she took over my writing life. Thank God, because I was floundering. Like everything, I was improvising as I was going, not know, not knowing what to do. Um, and she gave me a lot of a lot of the guidance I needed, up to and including bringing Toni Morrison to campus. <laughs> Holy God, what's <laughs> happening to me? And telling me, Luisito, it's time for you to be a feminist. And I said, well, okay. <laughs> so, you know, all of that, uh, you know, to me, this story is, is one of a piece, but I, I, I was so compelled to represent my dad. And I was so compelled with all the racial stuff that we've all gone through to represent the fam and to represent Tijuana and then to represent just the borderlands. And, you know, it, it turned into a, a, it turned into a crusade, but all the time trying to figure out my poor mother. So I don't think, you know, partially I think writing this novel was, was a way to find her to understand her and to realize that once she was this 27 year old idealistic dreamer that everybody was in love with, I thought I, I need to go back in time and shelter her a little bit. If that makes any sense. And uh, all, all of the stuff up till now, I think was for this book. I don't think, I think this is the best book I can write. And I'm going back to form in a certain sense, my next novel, <laughs> It's called The Zebras of Tijuana, but it's a, you know, it's a fanciful book about how the painted donkeys happen in Tijuana. Why, why are donkeys painted like zebras in Tijuana? Um, and I know it's, it's a response to the, to the, the uh, swan dive into overwhelming stuff in this book. I often, after too much has happened in books, take a break, you know, <laughs> so I did Devil's Highway followed by Hummingbird's Daughter, which took 25 years to write. And I thought, to hell with this. I'm going to write into the beautiful North and have a vacation. So I, I have to have fun, too. And this is a fun book. But... So, yeah, I, I feel like Witness probably has been my, mm -hmm. my abiding interest once I knew what I was doing. And it's just a footnote, which you may, you may find revelatory. I'm sure you know it. But, you know, after my dad's death, um, and the insurance company refused to pay because they said that he 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 was injured in a car crash. They forced him off a off a cliff. Um, they wouldn't they wouldn't pay his insurance because the uh, death certificate said he died of a stroke in a hospital. So Mexican, right? Mm. Um, but after that, I was searching for meaning, and I I joined a a relief crew in Tijuana, attending to the poor. Uh, <laughs> wow. So the the guy that was my boss, one of my mentors, and believe this, you may not going to believe this, but it's got something to do with all of this. I was my drama major, my, my published writer, all that stuff, you know, and uh, he was, he was a, a grizzled war veteran. And I think he himself was dealing with horrors from the Korean War and had decided to take care of thousands of children instead. And I went to work with him. And the first thing he did, he took me to the Tijuana garbage dump to attend to hundreds and hundreds of garbage pickers. And uh, I can assure you that I'd never been in the Tijuana garbage dump. Most people in Tijuana, you know, that's a different world for them. Uh, and he... To put out a, an aluminum tub, filled it with hot water, and put a bar of ivory soap. And he said, that's in there because it floats. And believe me, you'll thank me later. I thought, okay. And he said, are you humble enough to wash feet? <laughs> and I said, yeah, sure. <laughs> you know, I thought, what is this guy, Jesus or what? <laughs> and I knelt in the garbage and he sent 150 people to me in a line. Oh my gosh. It's 300 feet, man. And by the end of it, I was crying. I wasn't feeling noble. I wasn't feeling disgusted. 
the love with which those people gave me their feet, the trust. I would eat them and they'd hug me and I was crying like a baby. So sometimes these days, I know it sounds pretentious, but just now people have been writing to me just from these appearances that are starting. Oh, the price of fame. And I always tell them, I am not being famous. I'm washing feet. Don't you get it? I'm I'm trying I'm trying so hard to to not make this the you know the uh, Luis show. I'm trying to I'm trying to make things a little bit better. I guess that may sound pretentious, but it's honestly what I feel. But you know, it makes me think about your mom. It makes me think about your mom and Miss Jill. It makes me think about Irene and Dorothy. Yeah, Ellie and the third girls in the novel in this <laughs> massive truck, which was like, you know, a house on wheels with the coffee urns and the burners yeah. and the donut machine. And, and the record player. And the record and the record. <laughs> they got to be DJs for the boys. And the, the faces and all the faces and all the men and all the, the a kind of ministering, right? I mean, exactly it was. what you're describing with washing these feet and helping these people and not feeling noble and feeling very emotional. Yeah. I, 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 I'm thinking about your mom and I'm thinking about Irene. Yeah. There, uh, there's that moment in the, in, in the book where they, Irene forces Dorothy to pull over and do service. And the other two, they don't want to, they're like, Oh, come on, Irene. Really? No, no, no. They're the boys need us. And when Irene sees there's a, the soldier sitting on the back steps of the truck and she's looking at how skinny his neck is and he's got jug ears and she suddenly finds her hand going to him and she can't quite touch him and pulls back. That to me is 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 the thing. You know, it's not it's not romance, it's not adventure, it's not sex, it's human touch and I think that they you know, they they couldn't stop. Some women just were gone right away. They're like, I'm, I'm done with this. <laughs> but, you know, those women who ended up going through to the end or as far as they could, it was, it was something inexplicable. And I don't know that they could define it even later in life. Um, I will tell you that, you know, the book is funny. I hope everybody doesn't think, oh, my God, this is like <laughs> suffering is through funny. the worst parts of the Old Testament or something. It is not. <laughs> No, because they were hilarious, but they were <laughs> um, big this. I know you're going to love this because it makes we've been laughing about it since we realized this here in the house. So my mom and my dad married, you know, he moves to San Diego with her. And what job does he get driving a donut truck, a bakery <laughs> truck delivering donuts? I could never figure out why my mother thought this was so hilarious. She didn't say anything about it. She would just laugh. His name was Alberto. She'd call him Alberto. Oh, Alberto. It's so amusing. And like, what's so funny about our freaking donut? You know, it was to her just this amazing punchline. Then when we moved out of the barrio, we're living up in the in the suburbs. My first paying job was cooking donuts. And she was beside herself. She thought it was the funniest. But she kept that little joke secret. But boy, she got mileage out of it, you know. And she would tell me, say, dear boy, could you could you cook me up a little box of plain donuts, please? <laughs> now I know why. So oh. those memories, traumatizing too, but also I think cherished. And maybe they were so sacred to them that they also didn't maybe think we deserved to know. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. There may be some of that. It may not all be trauma. It just may be this is my most precious and alive and awful at the same time era of my life. Luis Alberto Urrea, thank you so much. What an honor to get to talk to you about Good Night, Irene. Oh, thank gosh. So thank you. I, this was so much fun. And I'll see you in September. I know you're you're going to be in San Antonio in September. Oh, really? Oh, let's hang out. This will be okay. so good. Yeah, we'll have to pick you up in the SUV. You'd be the third girl in the truck. We'll go <laughs> okay, that sounds Some good. donuts. We'll go get donuts. All right. Sounds like a plan. Thank you. Thank you again. Hasta Take luego. Care. Hasta luego. Bye. 
Luis Alberto Urrea is the author of Good Night, Irene. He was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize for his landmark work of nonfiction, The Devil's Highway. He's the author of numerous works, including The Hummingbird's Daughter and The House of Broken Angels, which was a National Book Critics Circle Award finalist. Good Night, Irene is published by Little Brown. This has been Book Public from Texas Public Radio. Write to us at bookpublic at tpr.org. Jacob Rosati composed our theme music. Dan Katz is Texas Public Radio's news director. I'm Yvette Benavides.